I think one of the things that makes it a good game is both its versatility and the ease at which you can get into the rule system. As I said, when I first started running Fate, I was dipping my toes in gaming online and I wanted to have a fairly simple rule system that people could get into quickly and that I could run stuff on the fly and not have to worry about hours of prep because I was only going to be running a game for four hours. It was a one shot mm-hmm. and I wanted the maximum time gaming. And I think once you're once the, a few little bits and pieces have been explained, the game is very easy to run and to play. And once you've sort of grasped it, it's very versatile because it doesn't have like a baked in campaign setting. So you can use it for a number of different things. If you say the real life fills up your days and you don't have time to play, well, midlife is the best time to start a new role playing phase. And you need a rescue, Chase coming at you with a rescue, a role play rescue. Chase gonna help my friend. Let's sit down the game again. My name is Che Webster, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Hello Rescuers, I hope you're well and thank you for listening. Today is the first and a new sequence of interviews that I'm doing with some people from the gaming community, focused very much on games that I don't personally play, but which might be excellent for you to give a go, especially if you're coming back to the hobby or you're new to the hobby. My guest today is the first such interviewee, and we're going to talk about a game that took the gaming community by storm around about 2013, and which has always had a strong position ever since. I'm not going to muck about, we're just going to dive in. This is Season 6, Episode 7, Tempting Fate, with John Large. John Allen Large is the brain behind Red Dice Diaries, the channel where he provides tips and advice for role-playing, broadcasts games showing that advice in action, and highlights games that offer innovative mechanisms or assistance to the GM. Although John has uploaded more than 900 videos to YouTube over the past three years or so, my exposure to the Red Dice Diaries came through his podcast of the same name and contributions to the Purple Worm podcast. In recent weeks, John has rebooted the podcast as RDDRPG, and it was the first episode talking to his wife, Hannah, through running a Star Trek game using Fate that inspired me to want a deeper chat about that game. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us, John. Thanks very much for having me. How did you get started with role-playing games then? Let's go right back to the beginning first. Okay, well, I first got started with role-playing games when I was at secondary school, Mm -hmm. and... I got into that via the route of sort of um, a few of my friends and myself were into the sort of a games workshop, like fantasy war games at the time. And at the time we we got into like painting the miniatures and we went to a few of these sort of tournaments they used to run at their headquarters. And I remember vividly, they used to give you like a few extra sort of points for your sort of Mm -hmm. tournament total. If you came up with a, a compelling backstory for your particular army and why it was why it existed and how it fit into the background of the tournament. And after we'd been to a few of them, 
I realized that I was enjoying that bit more than I was enjoying playing the actual sort of big war games. So I, I sort of like grubbed around a bit, not really knowing what to do about it, and then came across an old copy of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, the old like Hogshead version. And right. I was like, oh, this is great, because it has the same background, the same fantasy world that myself and my friends are familiar with, but it's more about sort of telling those adventures and creating those stories and having those single characters rather than having like a giant sort of tactical I mean, I've never really been big into the sort of the, the tactical element of war games. So I thought this is a good way of sort of broaching it to my friends at the time. Oh, would you play this game? It's set in the same background we all know. And we, we played that for a bit. We we ran a few adventures, didn't really take off massively. And that was sort of the end of that for a while. But it, mm-hmm. it sort of sparked that enthusiasm of me sort of looking around for, like, oh, well, if this game exists, what about these other games that are mentioned as inspirations? And obviously I'd heard of D&D, but I'd never really played it. And a few other sort of games like that. And I sort of grubbed around, picked up the odd couple of books here and there. And my parents, bless them, who sort of didn't really understand what role-playing was all about, but knew that I was into sort of D&D and games. Like that bought me a lot of the old um, the box sets, you know, the sort of board game, D&D board mm-hmm. games they did at the time and and things like Hero Quest and stuff like that. And so I gradually got into sort of creating like my own adventures for them and that led to me getting more involved in RPGs and trying to play more sort of RPGs with my friends. Right, okay. So you really came out of that sort of wargaming uh, games workshop scene, um, which I remember very well. My I used to work for them. Um what what sort of period was that then? So Hogshead were publishing what through the nineties? Yeah, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it, it would have been sort of mid to late nineties. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So right at the time when I was um, well working for them, so that's all good. And you were taking part in the tournaments. Yeah, I, I took part in a few of them, and uh, after like I, I sort of went with a fairly generic sort of fantasy army to the to the first one and i always tended mm-hmm. to play the art because i enjoyed the, the painting and the converting the models again but i yeah. always because i didn't have much money at the time just being like a fairly young lad i always tended to go for like the armies where it's like uh, like chaos warrior armies where you didn't need massive amounts of models but you could really sort of go to town on like converting them and painting them yeah that was good fun um i remember when jervis johnson um hired me to set up the warhammer grand tournament oh yeah and um i remember just some of the armies were absolutely gorgeous you know people would turn out and i could never do that stuff. i mean i could paint ish but you know could never do that stuff i was always gobsmacked by it all really yeah i mean sort of like necessity being the invention i remember my favorite one which was the one i sort of did when i first realized i was enjoying the background creation more was i we decided last minute to go to a tournament and i was like I have nothing prepared because like me and my friends always used to make it a big thing to like create like a new little army for each tournament. So I was like, Oh, what, what can I get that's quick to paint? I can do some conversions on. And I basically had a, a chaos army that consisted of entirely of groups of like war hounds mm-hmm. with like, um, sort of chaos warriors on horseback leading them that I'd converted to have like whips in their hands. And obviously the, the Chaos Hounds were pretty much the old um, plastic wolves used to get for like the Wolf Riders, and I yeah, just yeah. like converted them and sort of like, given them a fairly crude sort of like dry brush paint job. But I really enjoyed the background of sort of like oh why this sort of how this like Hound Master who was the leader had sort of drawn all these people together, mm. and that was the point where I really remember thinking oh do you know what I've actually really enjoyed creating the story of this army 
far more than I enjoyed actually playing it because it wasn't terribly effective. <laughs> so what were the games that you sort of played um, in that period uh, straight after sort of finishing with Woofrup? Yeah, so after I played Wolfrop, I played um, a bit of bit of D and D, but but I had like a mixture of different sort of books that I'd called from various board games. So it wasn't like a proper version of D and D. It was like oh, I've got this book out of Dragon Strike. I've got this book out of like Hero Quest. I'm just going to mash these ideas together and somehow come up with something that, if you squint at it, looks a bit like a proper role playing system. Mm. Sounds kind of curious, really. So you're very much the do-it-yourself kind of guy. Yeah, I mean, I've always enjoyed games that sort of have a sort of toolkit approach and that allow you to mess around with things and tweak things to get them to your own like personal preferences. So, And I think that did stem, as you were saying, from the sort of early days where I didn't have a lot of books, so I had to just work with whatever I had to hand. So you, I understand you played quite a lot of Fate uh, for a period of time, but then you more recently sort of shifted towards more OSR kind of gaming? Yeah, that's right. So how did you get involved with Fate then? Tell us that story. Okay, well, I remember picking up a copy of the Fudge RPG from Grey Ghost. Um, oh, fantastic. Which is, is a great book. And the, the primary sort of idea and enjoyment of that was it was very much billed as here's a system that you can use to mash other systems together and sort of mm. bridge that gap between them, which greatly appealed to me because I'd sort of been doing that anyway. But I was like, oh, if here's like a proper person who has written actual books, has come up with some official and in inverted commas ways of mashing systems together, I'll have a look, see what they've done. Maybe they'll have some fresh ideas that I can use to just sort of like, because I had a ramshackle collection of different books at the time. And I was like, I'd really love just to take everything that I've got and jam it into a game. And maybe this fudge will allow me to do that. And I, I sort of, I, I tinkered around with that for a while. I didn't really play much of it, to be honest, mainly because I didn't have like a regular group at the time. And it was a bit before sort of online gaming was really becoming a thing. But yeah, absolutely. It, it sort of like lodged the, the germ of an idea in my mind. And then later on, when I unfortunately missed the the Kickstarter for Fate Core by Evil Hat. But when they actually released it to purchase later on, and I saw that it was based on earlier versions of Fate, which I knew about, but I never really got into, and I knew were based on Fudge, I was like, do you know what? I'll, I'll pick that up and I'll give it a go see what i think of it and yeah just to sort of talk about fudge for a second obviously for the benefit of the listener really so stefano sutherland i think it was wasn't it who yes wrote it was fudge, yeah. um, one of the GURPS writers if i remember correctly and he was wanting as i understand it to sort of have a quite light and stripped down approach you know and to be able to take all of the kind of customization that you got from you know Gertz and what have you and then but to present it in a, in a fresher way so what he, he invented essentially what became known as the fudge dice and these days yeah. are known as the fate dice which are was it dice with two pluses two minuses and two blanks is that right that's correct yeah and you're rolling is it four of them yeah, you roll four of the dice to get a result between minus four and plus four. Um, and of course, that game as well had um, a kind of thing where you know you invented the attributes that you wanted to give characters and skills and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, if I remember correctly, you had a kind of expanded book which had a couple of worked examples of fantasy and things. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the thing for me is Fudge never really felt like, to, to me personally, like a game in itself. 
it felt mm. like someone was saying, uh, here's how you can you can create a, a sort of language that will allow you to sort of bridge the gap between two or more games. And if you translate mm. them all into this language, which is fairly easy to do because it was fairly sort of broad scope, then you can get yeah. them all talking to each other, almost like, like an interpreter between two people with different languages. The interpreter can bridge that gap between the two of them and that's what fudge sort of represented for me yeah well i remember it being um, quite innovative in that he was going for descriptors that were linguistic and not numeric as well so um you know it was like you had great strength or sort of good intelligence and all that kind of stuff yeah exactly i mean one of the ways that it sort of bridged this gap was as you say using linguistic terminology rather than just flat numbers and this was a bit of a revelation to me because it's the first time i'd even considered the fact that or oh, maybe you could just use actual words rather than numerical modifiers and things like that mm, absolutely and of course fate then went and well brought back the numbers in some ways <laughs> yeah yeah fate's a bit strange because when you when you make your roles in fate there is a a table which they call the fate table innovatively enough which gives a gives a word that represents your how successful you are so like i think a minus two result is a terrible result then it goes all mm. the way up and that was something that was pretty much ported straight over from fudge but you can ignore that and just use the numbers if you want but you can also say things like, oh, hey, yeah, you've got a great role there. Let's see, you've succeeded. And it just feels a little bit more natural to me to say something like, hey, that's a great role, rather than like, that's a plus three role you've got there. It just sort of yeah, rolls so, off the tongue a bit easier. When I supported the Kickstarter, because, you know, um, this is back in, it's published about 2013, if I remember correctly. I'm just that's correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember actually being very excited about it for those reasons that you're talking about, because um, I was thinking, great, you know, I can get people going. There's a few people I know who who like to play, but they really don't like math. And, and they don't also particularly like crunchy, hefty, detailed rules, which, you know, is the antithesis of what I like. But that that was kind of the appeal was, yeah, they can just talk plain English. And I do remember us having a few games with Fudge, you know, back in the day. So yeah. kind of that's my that was my intro to Fate, I suppose. You got involved with that sort of coming through the tail end of the Kickstarter, just after it, really, when it yeah. came out and got published. So what were the sort of first games that you were running? What sort of stuff did you do with it? Okay, so I ran I ran quite a few different games because part of the appeal to me was that you it, it was fairly system agnostic. You could you could literally plonk people down and create a setting with a group for a one shot. And when I was first sort of getting into running games online, I wanted to dip my toe in the water because I didn't know how well it was going to go or if it was going to work for me. So I just wanted mm -hmm. to run a few quick one shots. And along came Fate, certainly the Fate Accelerated version, where you could literally go, right, okay, guys, the PDF's available for free, so the players don't have to make a massive capital outlay. We're all going to sit down, we're going to create characters, and we're going to create the setting at the same time, all in the space of like your standard sort of four-hour session. I mean, I, mm. I've run things, with, I've played in games where, We've been doing like cyberpunk, exploring space stations. I've ran a few horror games with it. I've ran pirate-based games with it, your more traditional fantasy-style games with it. So it's pretty versatile. 
Yeah, and I always get the impression as well that the fake community generally favours this kind of uh, strongly collaborative approach between players and GM from, you know, including the world itself, you know, as opposed to the sort of traditional thing where the GM goes away and creates something and then the players come along and take part. It's, it seems much more collaborative. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the sort of truisms in fate is that if a player character has an aspect, so one of their descriptors, that mm. is a true thing. So if you, as the GM, allow someone to say, oh, I'm the greatest sword fighter in the Seven Realms, well, that instantly tells you there's somewhere out there called the Seven Realms, and <laughs> this person is the greatest swordsman of the Seven Realms. So I've always been a great fan as a GM. If the player characters give me information, sorry, the players give me information on their character sheet, they're pretty much telling me what bits of the game they're looking forward to. So it's in my best interest as a GM to use those and lots of games do that you know advantages flaws things like that but fate really certainly with the aspect mechanics really puts that front and center you can just look at a fate character sheet and say right th this player character's taken oh, I'm, a, I'm an outcast member of a crime syndicate right they obviously want to see crime syndicates and be on the run from criminals so you can just look at the character sheets and instantly see what bits of the game they're really interested in talk us through aspects i'm just looking at a character sheet here and it's got, i've got aspects to think about and skills to think about and then extras and stunts um so that all sounds interesting yeah well basically aspect you tend to have around about five aspects max in a game you have and each of those is a, a simple descriptor that defines something about your character in plain english you have two of these that are labelled specifically. One is the high concept, and that's just a short sentence summing up your character. So freewheeling space pirate would be a good high concept. Right. You then have another aspect which is called your trouble, and that is something which is a source of complication in your character's life. So I'm on the run from the Orion Syndicate because I owe them money. Might be a trouble. Yeah. Then your other three aspects can represent numerous different things. They could be a character trait of your character. They could be a cool bit of equipment you've got. Uh, for instance, oh, I've got the fastest ship in the sector might be a good aspect. Mm -hmm. the, there's no, the, the other three are a little bit more free form. But the right. idea of these aspects is that ideally a really good aspect should have both a positive side and a negative side to it. So right. if you say, oh, I'm on the run from the Orion Syndicate because I stole some money from them, that's obviously got a positive side because you've obviously got a lot of money, and it's got a negative side because these criminals are after you. And yeah. how you use these aspects in the game is you have something called fate points, which mm -hmm. if, you, if one of your aspects could potentially make you more likely to succeed at an action, you can spend a fate point and you can gain bonuses to your role. And you regain fate points when, if one of your aspects could make a situation more complicated for you, the GM can propose a complication. So I might say, let's say you go into a space cantina with your freewheeling space smuggler, and I say, oh, well, unfortunately, it looks like one of the Orion syndicates is stood over in the corner, and he's recognized you, he's going to get a couple of his boys and come after you. And if you're like, yeah, okay, no problems, you get a fate point for that because your background is enriching the game session. 
Mm-hmm. And and in terms of this, the terminology is invoking and compelling, right? That's that's correct. Yeah, um, invoking is when you put a fate point down to gain a bonus because one of your aspects has helped you, and compelling mm-hmm. is when you accept a complication in return for the role playing that that brings and receiving the fate point. If I'm I'm flying my fastest spaceship across the sector or starship, sorry, across the sector, because it sounds like we've gone a bit trek. Yeah. Um, you know, I can invoke. Uh, I don't know is that Ryan's are, are pursuing us or whatever. And I can invoke and say, yeah, but I can outrun them. That kind of thing. Wang yeah. down that fake point. But by the same token, having the fastest ship in the sector might mean that someone else might want to challenge you. Maybe they think their ship's faster. Maybe they want to try mm-hmm. to steal your ship. So it's also got a a negative in inverted commas aspect to it which you can use to earn fate points because it's not just the gm who can suggest these compels so in the previous example if you'd wandered into the space cantina you might say to me oh maybe there's an orion syndicate member here and if i go yeah do you know what i'll then throw you a fate point because you're suggesting a compel that is enriching the role playing and it's a adding a few extra complications to the plot. And then we've got some skills as well. And this looks like it's got some sort of strange pyramid-y thing that um, I can never get my quite get my head around. You've got uh, uh, like very few um, awesome skills and, and it goes down from there, as I understand it. Yeah. G- generally, you start with one skill at great, which is plus four, a couple of skills at good, which is plus three, three skills at fair, which is plus two, and four at average, which is plus one. And obviously, they add those modifiers to your fate dice rolls. Now, I think the reason it's not such a such a bind is it does look like a tiny amount of skills, but all the skills in fate core are pretty broad when it comes to their descriptions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's kind of um, I'm trying to find the list now, but it's kind of yeah, like you said, very very broad. If I remember correctly, um, sort of. Um, I'm good at fighting. I'm good at like persuading that kind of level well that's i mean in a a typical sci-fi game you might have skills which deal with particular weapons particular guns things like that in fate Mm. core you just have fight and shoot they are the two attacking Mm. skills yeah and when i want to do something um the thing i think i personally could never quite understand is um when we take an action it looks like incredibly simple but there are four types of action in the scene right you've got overcome um some kind of create with uh some kind of getting some kind of advantage to your character yeah uh the attack and a defend and that is it yeah i mean th- this is one of the things where unfortunately i think the layout of the game does fall down a bit because it makes these four actions seem a lot more complicated than they are attack and defend are just two sides of the same coin and mm-hmm. uh, an attack action is really an overcome action. So I think the, the distinction is a little bit artificial. So mm-hmm. to break them down, an overcome action, it's simply you trying to perform a task where there's no there's no directly rolled opposition to you. So let's say you're, you're trying to pick a lock. I'll say, oh, well, mm-hmm. you're going to need a great or a plus four roll. You roll your scale, add whatever modifiers you've got. If you beat the difficulty I've set, you've succeeded. If you draw, then you might succeed, but with some sort of complications. If you fail, you may still succeed, but there'll be a lot more complications or something's gone really wrong, or you could just fail depending on how the GM's spinning it. Uh, Uh An attack roll is simply you 
roll whatever fight score you're using and the opponent makes a defense roll. If you get higher, you do the difference between the two rolls in damage. If the defender wins, then they've managed to get away unharmed. And there is there a sort of weapon damage thing there or is it just the difference? There is an optional rule for weapon and armor ratings where you can say, oh, this weapon has a weapon rating of two, so it doesn't affect your roll, but if you win, it then does an extra two damage. But the core rules are it's just the difference between the two rolls. And how much difference does the um, invoking aspect make? Well, invoking an aspect typically allows you to either just re-roll your dice roll or right. you can use it to gain a plus two on your dice roll. That's the player's choice. And you you don't have to do that beforehand. You can choose to do that after you've made your roll. Okay. That all sounds fairly straightforward. Yeah, I think the, the main sort of complication comes in with the, the fourth type of roll, which is creating an advantage. Now, right. what you do with this roll is the GM will propose a difficulty. And if you succeed, you create a temporary aspect with a number of free invokes. So just as a random example off the top of my head, let's say some bad guys are pursuing you through a barn. You might say, oh, I want to create an advantage. I'm going to grab a lantern. I'm going to throw it in the hay bales there to set them on fire. I'll give you a difficulty rating. If you beat it, you'll create this aspect burning hay bales or hay bales on fire, whatever we decide to call it. And you'll have a number of free invokes on that. So when you're trying to escape from the bad guys later on, you might be like, oh yeah, but I'm going to use the burning hay bales as cover and I'm going to use one of those free invokes to gain a plus two to my dice roll without having Mm -hmm. to spend any of my fate points. But obviously it's only a temporary aspect. So as soon as you go outside the barn or the action moves to another area, that might no longer be applicable. And I remember there being this thing about, you know, in a combat scene or in a okay scene, the um, GM as well, essentially creating aspects in the terrain um, yeah. as kind of things that, you know, to try and give players things they can latch on to. And that very much a feature of the game. Yeah, that, exactly right. Um, so if, um, if an aspect's created in a scene, it won't have any free invokes on it typically. However let's say you're playing your freewheeling space smuggler again and you've not got any aspects that are particularly useful in this situation, but you're like, oh, I'm really going to need a boost to this role because they're they're a lot more proficient in this area than me, the bad guys that are after me. You can look around at the scenery and there might be things that you can use as an aspect spending your fate point, even though it's not part of your character. Mm-hmm. It's part of the scenery that you're using to gain an advantage. Or if you don't want to spend fate points, you could choose to roll to create an advantage with an existing aspect, which is just you racking up some free invokes on it by making a roll. Seems like a pretty straightforward system in, uh, as you describe it there. I was going to say, what do you think makes it a really good game? Okay, for me, I think one of the things that makes it a good game is both its versatility and the ease at which you can get into the rule system. As I said, when I first started running Fate, I was dipping my toes in gaming online, and I wanted to have a fairly simple rule system that people could get into quickly and that I could run stuff on the fly and not have to worry about hours of prep because I was only going to be running a game for four hours. It was a Mm one-shot, and I wanted the maximum time gaming. And I think once you're 
once the, a few little bits and pieces have been explained, the game is very easy to run and to play. And once you've sort of grasped it, it's very versatile because it doesn't have like a baked in campaign setting. So you can use it for a number of different things. Yeah. It, yeah. It's one of the things that appealed to me, I think, when I first looked at it was it, it being, uh, you know, again, one of those general games, a game where you've got a system and you can attach it to whatever world you want. And it's not really going to strain too hard. Um, I was it, really interested in hearing you talk to Hannah about, uh, you know, doing Trek. And there seemed to be a lot of options in the way in which you could sort of handle things, which was, you know, appealing. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons Hannah decided to go for that is because originally what spurred her to run a Star Trek game, obviously she's a big Trek fan, mm-hmm. and um, I bought her a copy of the Modiphius Star Trek 2D20 game yep. for her birthday because I was like, oh, I know you love Trek, and I even talked about running an RPG. There you go, happy birthday. And she read the book, loved all the background in it, loved some of the, the layout and design, but she was like, I'm not really loving the system because I she'd always seen Star Trek as being sort of quite freewheeling you know sort of space mm. opera styly and she didn't like that the system seemed quite tactical yeah so she wanted something that was a, a lot easier to manage both for her as a gm and also for her players many of whom hadn't rpg'd online or done much tabletop at all to get into and one of the things about fate is it's very easy to gradually introduce the role element to so say if you don't roll to create an advantage for your first few sessions it's not going to destroy the game or make it any less fun and you can introduce those concepts as you go along which is what she's been doing with her game so uh, perhaps a good game for someone who's sort of restarting their hobby or even just starting the hobby is that what you're suggesting yeah, I think it's a, a good game for first-time people to get into. And we've been talking a lot about Fate Core, but obviously there is Fate Accelerated, which is an even simpler version of the game. And in that, you don't have skills as such. You have six approaches which replace skills, and those are described as sort of in plain English again. So your approaches would be careful, clever, flashy, forceful, quick and sneaky so even if you've not played an rpg before you can go oh yeah i want to play a sort of stealthy thief so yeah i'm going to go for sneaky as my top one and it just makes sense because it's in plain english and of course in the game i guess what you're doing is right i'm going to be sneaky now and you know that you're going to be testing that particular approach that's it exactly the approaches work really well because it's obvious in most situations what sort of approach you'll be using. So, I mean, I, I did have a game around for around a sort of swords and sorcery game for a few of my friends mm. who had a lot of tabletop RPGing, and we had one guy who was playing like a pirate captain who had flashy as his top thing. Yeah. And every every test he tried to do, he was like, "Oh, I'm going to attack this guy flashily." I'm like, "Yeah, okay, that, that sort of worked." <laughs> then he'd be like, "Oh, yeah, and I'm going to like leap across this chasm flashily." And eventually, we had to start saying, "No, no, you, you can't do everything flashily." But uh... <laughs> okay, so I guess there's that um, that that openness does have its vulnerability if you you know if you push it. Yeah, yeah, it most certainly does. I mean, it because it's not uh, a tactical system. Like really, obviously that has the advantages that we've talked about. It's easy to get into, it's easy to run. But if you have someone who's maybe thinking about it a bit more tactically, it would be fairly easy to sort of game the system, really. Yeah. Um, what do you think makes it really different as a game then, you know, in terms of its mechanisms and the way it runs from, you know, other games that you played, more traditional games that you played? 
Okay, I think the the aspect that makes it really different for me is, as we were talking about earlier, the fact that it uses a lot of linguistic terms yeah. rather than solely relying on numbers yeah. to describe things. Now, obviously, we're all we're all familiar with D and D, so we could look at a D and D sheet and go, "Oh, that fighter's got strength eighteen. Oh, yeah, he's he's probably rippling muscles and whatever." We, we know the drill. But if you were coming to D and D having like not played it before, and someone went, "Oh, this guy's got strength 18 you'd be like, "Yeah." What does that mean? Whereas if you look at a fate sheet and this person says, oh, well, my my forceful approach is my strongest thing, you know what that character's about. Or if someone says, oh, I've got a, I've got a great shoot skill, you instantly can get an idea of what that character is about, even if you don't know the intricacies of the system. Mm. So it's kind of going to, it sounds to me like it's a bit more sort of freewheeling and um, loose to allow that space for some creativity at the table, really. Yeah, I mean, I've I sort of typically when people ask me about fate, I describe it as a game that works best when the player characters are very competent in certain areas as they first come into the game. Mm. So we know the stereotypical OSR game; it's that zero to hero idea. You, you don't start off playing a mighty wizard; you start off playing a, a, a wizard's apprentice with one spell and like all the hit points of a paper napkin. Yeah. Whereas if you're playing in Fate, you tend to start off as being like quite proficient at what you're good at. So if you come in and you're like, oh, yeah, I want to play this freewheeling space smuggler who owns a ship and he's like one of the best pilots in the sector, that's how you come in. It doesn't really do that sort of zero to hero thing as well out of the box, which is why I think it works so well for one shots because in a one shot, you tend to want people to be like quite good at certain archetypal things mm. so they can just jump into the the adventure and get on with it because they haven't got 16, 18, whatever number of sessions to build their character up. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned one shots quite a lot with Fate. So is this a game that stands up to campaign play? I've run, I've run a few campaigns with it. The only thing I would say is I don't think there's as much emphasis on character advancement in fate as there is in other systems now the, the way advancement tends to work in fate is you sort of you don't really gain extra stuff for your characters so much as you tweak that character to make it suit what's going on in the narrative mm -hmm. so if you let's say your space smuggler um, one of the other characters was killed by the orion syndicate and he swore revenge you might tweak their aspects to reflect that you might tweak their skills or their approaches depending on what version of the game you're running but it wouldn't be like something like dnd where you start off you've not got much power and you get progressively more powerful as the game goes on in fate you tend to start off pretty proficient at things and you just sort of narrow down your focus as a campaign goes along. But you can run campaigns with it. I've run a couple of vet campaigns of varying lengths with Fate, and they, they work pretty well. I mean, I've heard the criticism that it's it's a game that favours the player, you know, like the players are constantly invoking things and, and sort of getting their way in the game. Um, is that unfair? I, I don't think it's unfair. I think it's perhaps a, a one-sided view mm -hmm. because one of the things I've observed when I've and I've heard people saying this an awful lot myself is when I've observed games where people seem to think that's a problem, the the GM seem to forget that anything the players can do in this, the NPCs can do in this. So to use our example of like the burning barn, if the NPCs want to spend one of their fate points and take advantage of the burning barn 
they can do that. They can roll to create advantages. Mm. They can do all the things that players can do. So I think it does balance out, but only if the GM remembers that. Yeah, so you've got to have a GM who's going to be looking for those opportunities and willing to sort of mess with the players a little bit, uh, you know, using yeah, exactly. PC stuff. Okay, cool. What would be the good starting point then? If you wanted, if someone listening to this right now is thinking, oh, yeah, it sounds kind of cool, you know, fancy getting into that. What would you suggest? Accelerated? Yeah, I, I would suggest getting faint accelerated, although they have just not long ago bought out a, a new version called Fate Condensed. Okay. Now, I believe that's available on drive through as pay what you want for a PDF. And it's basic. Like we said, Fate Core came out a long time ago now. And what they've done is they've basically taken Fate Core, condensed it down, and they've incorporated some of the things they've learnt in the years since Fate Core came out and some of the things that were like in Dresden Files Accelerated and various other games that Evil Hat have produced that use the Fate system. Mm. So Fate Condensed or Fate Accelerated would be what I'd recommend, both because they're both very cheap and also they're very quick to get into they're fairly sort of simply laid out whereas fate core is sort of well, i don't know like nearly 300 pages like a5 pages yeah. fate condensed is 66 pages or so and fate accelerated is just over 40 mm. so you can see they're they're a lot easier to get into although you do sometimes have to do a little bit of interpretation because a lot of the extra pages in fate core are examples and explanations of how things work so you can sort of dive deeper and and they did also bring out a, a system toolkit what was that all about do you have any idea what that was about yeah i do have an idea what that's about okay so the fate system toolkit it was one of the first books they bought out for it and it basically is a guide to fine tune because fate core and fate accelerated by necessity are fairly generic yeah they're designed for you just to be able to pick pick it up and run what you want with it Whereas the Fate System Toolkit gives you some ideas as to how you can tweak the the system to focus on particular different aspects of play. So mm. it gives you a breakdown of how aspects work and ways you could tweak that. Likewise, how you could change the skill list for Fate Core and a few other ideas as to how you could use alternate methods instead of the pyramid method for mm. skills. There's advice on creating stunts in the game. And there's also some additional ideas like how you could use Fate to run chases, social conflicts, things like that. Right. There's a there's a few sample magic systems in there because the the core fate system doesn't really have a magic system in it as such. You can re- represent a lot of magic using stunts, um, certain skills and aspects but this gives you like three sort of sample systems that you can use and there's a few other little subsystems that it gives as examples to show how you can tweak the rules up there's a kung fu skill system there's a cyberware system there's some advice on like if you want to run like really big monsters and stuff like that and some ideas on vehicles superpowers mass combat and there's also what they call the horror paradox in there where it talks about how you can potentially use fate to run horror games and i remember when it first came out that a lot of people said oh, you can't really use fate as a, for a horror game because the characters are so powerful they're so sort of involved they're so proficient but 
you can do you just have to sort of slant it in a particular way and the the system toolkit gives you some advice on how to do that that sounds kind of um pretty good rounding out kind of book by the way what's a stunt okay yeah a stunt is a stunt's a little bit like an aspect but it's it basically gives you a bonus because you have something some cool bit of kit or some character trait you get a bonus in certain narrowly defined uh, situations. Mm-hmm. So I might say, oh, let's let's see. Because I am the best pilot in the sector, I gain a plus two to roles when piloting a space fighter. Right. Now, I wouldn't have to spend a fate point to activate that, but it has a far narrower focus than my aspects. So in that example there, it's only when I'm piloting space fighters. So if I'm in a freighter or a bigger ship, I don't get that bonus. But if I'm in a space fighter, I get the plus two, and I don't have to spend any fate points. There's a there's a there's a number of what they call stunt rubrics in the the book, which tell you how to various different effects you can have off stunts. But these basically tend to come down to either under certain narrowly defined circumstances, I get a plus two bonus. Or once a session, I can do X cool thing. So you might say, well, because I'm so well-traveled throughout the the sector, once a session, I can declare I've got an NPC contact in a certain area. Okay, sounds pretty straightforward. What made you shift away from playing Fate? Because I I know you said you played for a while and now you've sort of moved to other, other directions. Yeah, I mean, for me, I've got quite a lot of the Fate books, like the Fate Worlds books they bought out with uh, example uh, settings and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I wrote a few articles for the for the Fate Codex publication, which was released, and uh, really did enjoy the system. Like, I've got the Fate Horror Toolkit and the Adversary Toolkit. But as the, the books went on, all of the, the settings seemed to get progressively more niche so at the start, it was like, oh, yeah, we, we've got a, an urban fantasy setting, the, the, the Dresdenverse, so Dresden Files Accelerated. Or, oh, yeah, how about a, a strange sort of Wild Wild West-style setting with a bit of fantasy thrown in there? And I was like, oh, yeah, great. That, that, they're nice sort of broad concepts. Then as it went on, it was like, uh, hey, have you ever wanted to play uh, mice who live on Mars and ride around on like motorbikes? And I was like, <laughs> no, no, not really, if I'm if i'm perfectly honest and as the books went on i started seeing less and less utility for me personally i mean don't worry there's nothing wrong with any of the books the books carried on being of consistently high quality i mean evil hat books have always been pretty high quality but i started finding less and less use for me personally as a gem because i mean i remember when it first came out like literally every book that came out i was like oh great i can't wait to run that setting or there's some little bit some little element i can take from that book and i can use it in a game mm-hmm. and i was finding that less and less as the the books went on and as as they developed more and as we sort of said earlier on i've very i've always been the sort of gm who wants to take bits out of various books and put them together to sort of Frankenstein something new. Mm. And I think part of the reason I moved over to playing OSR stuff is because they all share that sort of that D&D sort of basis while most of the books I've got to do. So it was, it was quite easy to take elements from the different OSR books and incorporate them into different games. 
And that's one of the things I really look for when I'm running RPGs. So Fate for you, you know, obviously you started out as a great tinkering game and you can run whatever you like with it. Lots of great one shots. Um, and essentially you've kind of got to the point where you're now creating very much your own stuff. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I still run Fate. Like if I if I go to conventions or we want a quick pickup game with people, Fate will be nine times out of ten, it will be the game I'll go for because it is so easy to get into. It's so easy to just run a really exciting, dynamic game without lots of hassle and character genning and stuff like that. But as I started becoming more comfortable with running games online and I wanted to start doing more campaign stuff, I I was noticing more and more that fate wasn't really scratching that particular itch for me and i don't think that's any shortcoming of the system it's just a case of that's not really what it's been made for and i was like well i could try and like retool it from the ground up and add loads of extra stuff into it or i could just look for a game which does more of what i want and then i've got less adapting to do as much as i love playing around with systems and incorporating different elements i think once you get beyond a certain point you're effectively rebuilding the system from scratch Great. It sounds like you've um, sort of graduated through fate, I guess. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, I think it's a, still a great game, and I, it does serve a very useful purpose to me, which is, like I say, one-shots or uh, convention games. But I think as I've got more used to running online and I've got a more regular group of players and I wanted to start doing more sort of campaign stuff, fate wasn't really the game that was sort of ticking that box for me. What advice have you got for someone who's thinking about returning to role-playing games then, John? Do you mean returning to role-playing games in general or via Fate specifically? Either way, really. Okay, well, my advice if someone was returning to role-playing games after a prolonged absence would be, first of all, find a game that you personally are comfortable with. So Mm. for me, when I first started gaming online, Fate was that game for me. It, It felt very comfortable. It was easy to get into. I didn't have to do loads of prep. I could say to my players, right, here's the PDF. You don't have to spend loads of money on it. And that was great. But it may not be the game that's suitable for everybody. And I think look around for a bit, spend your time looking at a few systems, find a game that you as a gem feel comfortable with, because Mm. obviously you're the one who's going to be running it. And if if you're running a game that you're not really comfortable with, I think players can sort of sense that. Is Fate um, a game that's quite welcoming, and is the Fate community quite welcoming to new players generally? Yeah, I mean, when I first started playing it, I mean, back in the sort of Google Plus days, um, there was a huge community on there. It's some like all the communities that are on Google Plus. It's somewhat fragmented now, but there's various Fate groups on Facebook, MeWe, stuff like that, mm-hmm. and they're generally pretty welcoming to new people asking questions i mean i know when i first started i was asking questions left right and center and now occasionally i'll get people asking me questions that i'm quite happy to talk about it you know anything i do to help someone out so yeah i think it's got quite a welcoming community so for you it's like find the game you're saying someone find the game that you feel comfortable with and get out there and and have a go really yeah i mean they're like I say, spend spend your time, take your time finding a game that you think you can run and that you're comfortable with. But there comes a certain point where you just have to sort of jump in and sort of learn to swim, really. Mm. And obviously, if you've got a game that you're more comfortable with, 
that's great and that will help out with that but you'll never know exactly how it's a game's going to work until you're actually running it because games can read very differently when you're just reading them as a book to when you're actually running them so that i mean that's part of the reason why i started off with one shots because i was like right i've not really got enough confidence to to run a full campaign or anything like that but if i run a one shot and it goes a bit downhill or it's a bit of a stinker well it's only two three four hours and then i can learn lessons from that and get better for the next game what do you think the value of role-playing games is i think for me personally the it's a, an imaginative pursuit that encourages us to, I'll be with a system and stuff like that, but it encourages people to use their imagination and collaborate to create something that's far more than the sum of its individual parts. So I know, for instance, when, when I'm running games, if I was sat here and I was like, right, I'm just going to write a story, the result would be very different to me running a game where I've got two, three, four other people all putting their ideas in, all trying crazy stuff out. You've got random elements, like random charts and stuff like that. So for me, it's it's almost a, a uniquely collaborative sort of fiction creation. Now, I know there's rules and everything, so it's not like an actual story, but it encourages everyone to be creative and also to bounce ideas off each other and just have fun in what I think is a fairly productive social activity. What haven't I asked you about fate that we need to cover? Mm, what haven't you asked me about fate? Well, I think we've, I think we've covered most of the stuff. Um, I would say the only thing to bear in mind, uh, in addition to what we've already talked about, if you do pick up fate and you're like, right, I'm just going to run some fate, is that it doesn't come with any sort of baked-in settings. Mm. You, and it gives you some advice as to how you can use players' aspects. You can talk with the players to create the sort of mini setting for a game. And that all works great. I certainly ran with that for my first few games. But if you want to have a setting, you will have to do a bit of legwork yourself. But there are the the various Fate World books that they bought out. I think there was three or four of them they bought out. And mm. each of them has sort of three or four like mini little campaigns in with occasionally some additional extra rules. There's like the Dresden Files Accelerated. There's um Tachyon Squadron they did, which is all like you're all sort of fighter pilots in a space fleet. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's uh you will have to do a bit of legwork if you just want to pick up the like the the core book and run with that. But if you can splash out on one of the Fate Worlds books, there's plenty of like campaign inspiration and background inspiration out there. And it sounds to me like it really uh, works well when you're trying to adapt something, you know, like as Hannah has done with Star Trek or, you know, you watching that TV show and thinking, hey, you know, I don't know, I was watching Supernatural Series 14 the other day, you know, pretty easy to adapt that into playing with fate, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things it's still sort of inherited from Fudge, which I love the fact that it's still in there, is that because it renders everything down into fairly simple, plain terms, it's very easy to convert, inverted commas, stuff to fate. So if you were like, oh, um, yeah, we're playing in we're playing in a Star Trek game, but I want to have an ogre in it for some reason, you can go, you can look at the the stats and go oh well i, I think an ogre would be would be good at fighting um, maybe their 
they're a little bit clumsy, so they'll have a, a slightly lower score in this. It's very easy to do that. So before we finish, I wouldn't mind asking if it was all right with you a little bit about your own podcast, RDDRPG, which you've just sort of rebooted. What can um, listeners expect from that show? Okay, well, part of the reason I wanted to reboot the podcast was because um, myself and my wife, who is also a gamer, obviously, hadn't really role-played together for a number of years Mm-hmm. And we've recently, thanks to online play, got into doing a bit more role-playing together. And I was like, well, the, the my original podcast, which I enjoyed doing and got, got a great response to, had started to feel it, like it was just sort of me sort of talking a bit out into the ether. Mm-hmm. Whereas I really wanted to get my wife involved with the podcasting because as I was saying about collaborative gaming, I think if you've got more people putting stuff into that melting pot, you get a better result out of it. So I think the the results for the relaunch podcast are far better for having both myself and Hannah bouncing ideas off each other and discussing it than just me sat down scratching my head and trying to think of a, a topic to cover. In terms of what we're covering at the moment, we've got a few sort of ideas that we're working on. We're going to be trying to broadcast three episodes a week. That's sort of the schedule we're shooting for at the moment, along with maybe a a sort of bonus episode answering like post-bag queries, sort of things like that. Hmm. We're going to be doing, trying to do an episode a week where we're looking at a a random D&D monster sort of drilling back into some of the mythological inspiration for that and talking about ways it could potentially be reskinned or used in a novel way in people's games. Mm-hmm. We're also be, going to be trying to give some handy hints, I suppose, really, for people who are role-playing in various situations. So we've done our first episode in that style where we were giving sort of 10 tips for role-playing online, because obviously a lot of people have been asking about that with the current situation, and a lot of people are having to game online, even if they didn't previously. Mm. So the, the main focus is going to be on small... We're trying to keep the episodes reasonably compact, so offering sort of hints and tips to help with certain aspects of role-playing, looking at... Um, quite traditional creatures and how you can put a new spin on them. And we're also going to do the occasional sort of longer episode where we'll have other people come in and we'll just be chatting around a particular subject like we're doing now. Sounds great. John, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming onto the show and talking to us. And thanks for giving us such a great introduction, really, to Fate and Fate Accelerated. No problems. I'm always Thanks for having me. I'm always happy to talk about RPGs. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Roleplay Rescue. Thanks again to John Large from Red Dice Diaries for coming to talk about fate. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I have to be honest and say that having spoken to John, I've been quite tempted to dust off my copy of Fate Core and give it a go in the world of Dead Rain, the zombie apocalypse game from Palladium. I think stealing the world of Dead Rain and throwing down some characters using fate could be a lot of fun. As I said at the start, this is the first of a new approach to interviews in which I aim to talk to role-playing game activists about games that I am personally less familiar with. John has given us an introduction to Fate today. 
I have recently recorded an interview with Joe Richter about playing Pathfinder, which I'm really looking forward to sharing with you. But if you're listening and would like to come on the show to talk about a game you think would be brilliant for a returning or new gamer to try out, please get in touch. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget, because we're an Anchor podcast, you can drop me a voice message if you have any comments or questions. And if you've enjoyed listening to John, please consider sharing the episode all across social media. Before we go, I'd like to add a thank you to the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash rpgrescue. Thank you, all of you, for helping to keep the lights on. I'm Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. See you again next Saturday. Game on.